much. That was absolutely uh, beautiful. I could listen to that all day. Uh, what a great gift to bring to the Lord. If you have the scriptures with you this morning, and I hope you do, I'm going to ask you to turn to Matthew in the New Testament, the 16th chapter. Matthew chapter 16. You know, fundamentals are essential uh, to success. You know that's true whether you're building a house or coaching a team or flying an airplane. Uh, you'd better apply the basics if you're going to be successful. Dr. Brian Harbrecht runs a level one trauma center, and he is responsible for 43 patient bays, 20 trauma surgical ICU beds, five burn beds, six smoke, uh, excuse me, six stroke uh, areas, and 50 critical care beds. And Dr. Harbrecht says that fundamentals are especially true in trauma medicine. He said in the trauma center where life hangs in the balance, it is his job to remind everybody the importance and of the basics of priorities. And he calls it the ABCs of trauma. A, airway. B, breathing. C, circulation. D, disability. And E, exposure. He recalled the time that a patient was rushed into the ER after an accident in which her leg was jutting out at a 90 degree angle just below the knee. I mean, it was just an awful, gruesome looking fracture. And everyone in the, in the ER was paying attention to this fracture, which is D, disability. But they'd forgotten about A, airway. He said the lack of oxygen is, is what will kill you first. And as the one running the trauma center, he said it was his job to be the one uh, to not get carried away with what looks terrible, but to actually remember the basics. And so uh, he got her airway cleared, put in a breathing tube, started IVs with fluids to help with her circulation, and eventually got around to the D of disability and dealing with the fracture. And he added that even the most experienced physicians have to go back and review the basics continually. You know, I think the church in America today needs to go back and review the basics. We are entering a period of moral emergency in this country, and if we're going to survive spiritually, it is vital that as believers, we have a solid grasp of the basics of our salvation. 1 John 2, 24 says, and I, and I quote, As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. And if it does, you'll also remain in the Son and in the Father. So will you hear the word of God? as it is recorded in Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13. The scriptures say, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you're Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he truly was the Messiah. May God and his Holy Spirit, who authored these words, bless them in our hearts with understanding. And to God be the glory. Amen? 
Jesus Christ and Lord. The irreducible minimum of the Christian faith. One cannot believe less than is implicit in those three words and rightfully claim to be a Christian in the authentic sense of the gospel. This very familiar incident that we just read out of Matthew's gospel, of course, it's mentally retained by many of us. This incident came two and a half years after Jesus had begun his three-year ministry. The disciples had had adequate opportunity to observe the Lord. They heard what he said. They listened with amazement to the authority and the originality with which he spoke. They watched him with amazement as the blind were made to see, the mute were made to speak, the deaf were made to hear, as lepers were cleansed and cripples were made to walk, and thousands were fed with just a few scraps of food. They'd seen the dead raised. And now at Caesarea Philippi, his disciples who've had all the opportunity to listen, to watch, and ask questions for those two and a half years, the time had come for Jesus to deal with the fundamentals. And so he poses the question, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now don't miss it. Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man more than any other title. It's as if he wanted us to cue in and note how he represented humanity to us. He identified with every human need, poverty, hunger, the wretchedness of sin. He had come to represent us before a holy heavenly father to be our advocate, the perfect liaison, and the go-between, if you will. In effect, what Paul summarized to young Timothy when he said, there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus, the man. Son of man. Jesus referred to himself again and again. It was his favorite title when alluding to himself. But he asked, who do people say the Son of Man is? And isn't it easy and wonderful to see that when Jesus gets down to the fundamentals about himself and his real purpose for entering history, isn't it interesting that he would begin with that question? as though it is the first question that men and women must answer. Indeed, it is. In fact, when it comes to you and me, to confessing what we believe, I want you to see this. I want you to see this as the inescapable question for all time. Who is Jesus? You know, John in his gospel, just following that, that golden text of John 3.16 and 17, which goes on to say, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, right, but to save the world through him. John added this categorical statement. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Do you ever wonder, how could John make such a categorical statement that believing in Jesus was the line in the sand between condemnation and salvation? 
Well, in the prologue of his gospel, back in the first chapter of John, he said that in Jesus, in him, was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. Jesus, in a real sense, was all that in flesh. And he declared that when Jesus came into this world, the light had been turned on. That it was exposed to every individual. In other words, there has not been born any other individual in history anywhere or at any time from the beginning of time who has not been enlightened by Jesus Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul could say in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, that people are without excuse. A person who refuses Jesus Christ is inexcusable because Jesus turned the light on in a world for everyone to see and acknowledge him. It's an inescapable question, and it is an unavoidable issue in everyone's life. Who is Jesus Christ? Well, there are many answers. The crowds, the multitude, they'd made up their minds. They'd had their opinions. Some say that you're John the Baptist. Some people say that you're Elijah. And still others say maybe you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But this much can be said about the multitudes. They recognized in Jesus more than just a fascinating person. They saw him as one who could not be explained on any other grounds than except the multitudes knew Jesus had to come from heaven. He had to be somebody that had risen from the dead. Someone who had somehow come into this world, into our time, out of eternity. Look at the names they mentioned. Elijah, if you'll remember, he is the one that was captured up in a whirlwind, in a chariot of fire, and taken to heaven. Jeremiah, the most beloved of Israel's prophets, he was the passionate prophet, the, the weeping prophet, the prophet with a heart. Or more recently, John the Baptist, who was beheaded by Herod. They're all gone. Somehow there is something about Jesus that when men and women tried to explain him, they had to identify him with somebody from outside of history. But their explanations were not adequate. And then Jesus makes it personal and of course, it is a very personal question. Because for them in all time, Jesus' disciples admit to their belief. You'll probably remember on one occasion, Jesus said, I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. Jesus said that. You cannot escape answering the question. You can ignore it. Uh, you can shove it aside or put it to the back of your mind. But remember again what Jesus said. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. To be silent about your faith, to be silent about Jesus is to oppose him. To not stand up for Christ is to reject him. Matthew 12, 30 says, whoever is not with me is against me. It's an inescapable question personally. But I'd also like for you to discover that publicly declaring our faith is a reasonable response for salvation. It's a reasonable response for salvation. Jesus said to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter gives that confession of the faith that we repeat today. Jesus, you're the Christ. 
You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, it's, it, to me, it's sort of interesting, parenthetically, Peter had been prepared for this kind of a testimony when he had first met Jesus. Do you remember how he was introduced to Jesus? It was actually Andrew who, had, who brought him to Jesus. Andrew and Philip were actually disciples of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist said, you need to stop following me and you need to go after the Son of Man. Go after Jesus. And when they did, the scriptures tell us in John 1, verse 41, that the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and he said to him, what? We found the Messiah. That is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus took one look at Peter and said, you are Simon, son of John, and you will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. So in a very real sense in the record, it was Andrew who first made the confession of faith before Peter did. And I'm sure that Peter reflected on that title very often. Peter knew what the title Messiah or Christ meant. In fact, I'm sure he thought about it often. And up to this time, though, no one had publicly declared in a group of individuals that Jesus was the Christ. And now Peter has the faith to say it. Jesus, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And I want you to notice three unique things about this answer. Number one, it pleases Jesus. In verse 17, it said, Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. My mom would say, being from the South, well, bless his little heart. <laughs> it was the right answer. It was the right answer for Peter. And friends, it's the right answer for you and me today. Secondly, it involved divine revelation. This is not just a human discovery. Look in verse 17 again. This was not revealed to you, Peter, by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Now, that's not to say that we scuttle our intellect when we come to Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, I'm personally convinced that it is irrational not to believe in Jesus Christ. The person who chooses to refuse or deny Jesus Christ, to me, they hold an indefensible position. There's nothing reasonable. There's nothing rational about turning down Jesus Christ. It's the most irrational action in history as far as I'm concerned. In fact, the psalmist agrees in Psalm 14.1. It's the fool that says in his heart, there's no God. There is nothing sensible that following Jesus and knowing Jesus and serving Jesus uh, takes away from. It is the most sensible decision we will ever make. And it ought to be apparent today, more than any other time in history, that the way of Christ, it's the way of sanity in this world. Nevertheless, it comes by the way of revelation from God and it implies a heart that's moving in the right direction. It implies that the thing that keeps most people from acknowledging the truth about Jesus Christ, it's not the intellect. It's something deeper still. It's something toxic in the human heart. It's something cancerous in the human will, something that, that hits the mute button on the soul that will not allow an individual to believe. It isn't that most people can't believe, it's that they won't believe. But once you're honest and you're open to God's word and open to the Holy Spirit, God will reveal to you who Jesus truly is. And nothing satisfies the soul like Jesus.
Paul would write to the troubled church at Corinth and say, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. It is a God-given answer. And then the third thing about Peter's confession, do you see how Jesus quietly and quickly, even without comment, he accepts confession as an honor to himself. When you or I stand before other believers and say, I believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, when I make that confession, it's honorable to Jesus. He knew what it meant of of anybody, and he accepted it. Peter really knew what it meant. The disciples, they really knew what it meant. There's no ambiguity when it came to the term Christ or Messiah, because even the enemies of Jesus knew exactly what it meant. In fact, it's during his trial in Mark 14 that the high priest is asking Jesus question after question. And we read in Mark chapter 14, verse 61, that again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah? I mean, point blank, are you him? Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, Jesus said. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the reaction of the high priest is interesting. That's all they needed to condemn Jesus. For the record continues, the high priest tore his clothes and he said, why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You see, Jesus' enemies, they knew what it meant for Jesus to say, yes, I am the Messiah, I am the Christ. Peter knew what it meant. Jesus certainly knew what it meant. So finally, what really? did it mean? What was at the heart of it? This is the third thing on your outline. And friends, this is why we confess Christ. Confessing Jesus is Lord, it means being sure, personally, that Jesus is Lord no matter what. Who is the Christ? You see, the word Christ, it's a Greek word, Christos from Kreo, and it means anoint. The Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word, Messiah which means the anointed one. And anointing in the scriptures always refers to the transferring of God's spirit, of God's power to a person that has been cleansed and set apart to be a prophet or a priest or a king. It's a visible sign of an appointment to office, the establishment of a sacred relationship to God. And this Messiah, this anointed one that was to come, the the power and the spirit of God would rest upon him as never before. And he wouldn't just be a priest or a prophet or a king, but he would become all three. He would be unique and unmatched in his power. This Messiah would destroy all the world powers in an act of judgment. He would deliver Israel from its enemies, restore her as a nation. He would reign as the king of a kingdom with such political and religious authority that all of the nations would stream to him and they would bow before him. As the prince of peace, he would put an end to war. As the Messiah of righteousness, a title which Jeremiah would adopt, he was to reign in righteousness universally. He was to be the son of David that would succeed David's throne as a king without equal. That's what Messiah meant to the disciples, to Peter, to Andrew, to Jesus, and to the priests. 
History records that when this occurred in the scriptures, it was a time of great expectancy in the Roman world. People were expecting some cataclysmic event, not, not on the part of the Jews like Simeon. You remember at Jesus' birth, the one that God had said, you will not die until you see the Messiah. And the day that, that Joseph and Mary brought Jesus to the temple to be dedicated. Not, but even non-Jews, they lived in an atmosphere of expectancy that something has got to give. Think about our day and time. That something has got to come. And this expectation had been stirred up by John the Baptist. Hundreds if not thousands of people had been to the Jordan River to be baptized with a baptism of repentance. And it also explains why many people did not receive Jesus, including Judas Iscariot. See, the amazing thing was not that Jesus was rejected by these people, but that there were those who continued to accept him. Because all of this this messianic expectation of Israel, Jesus flipped it on end. You see, he contradicted so many of the things they'd come to believe up to this point. They could not conceive of a reign in righteousness. They conceived of him displaying great power. They perceived of him destroying the enemies of Israel and restoring Israel to its prominence in history. But when this great confession is given by Peter, what happens? Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 16, verse 21, these words, from that time on, from the time Peter made that great confession, Jesus began to explain to his disciples he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. That was so contrary to everyone's expectation of the Messiah. It it was something that stirred their hearts. So in verse 22, it's Peter, the same one who made the great confession, who, who, who would say, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus. Never, Lord, he said, this is never gonna happen to you. And the man Peter, who had just heard God commend him for his great confession, had to listen to Jesus say to him in verse 23, it says, Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. The Messiah having to die, the Messiah being killed, was in complete contrast to their hopes and their dreams and expectations. Of course, it was there in the Old Testament all along but they were so preoccupied with this glorious expectation of the restoration of Israel as a nation under the reign of one like King David and world peace and justice and righteousness everywhere and and no more war. They were so excited about that prospect, they completely missed the concept of the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 or of Psalm 22 and so many other passages. Friends, we know that Jesus understood and he believed he was the Christ. And Jesus knew what it meant. Peter knew what it meant. The priest knew what it meant. The disciples knew what it meant. And without a doubt, the New Testament church, by the time the New Testament is stitched together, they believed it with all their heart. Because up until that time, 
Messiah or Christ always had the definite article with it. It was the Christ. But they began to drop the article. And Christ almost became the second name of Jesus. It wasn't just Jesus the Christ. It was Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. It was their way of understanding there would never be another. He was the anointed one promised by God from the book of Genesis, from the beginning of time. And as far as the New Testament church was concerned, the matter was settled. But they missed the point of the suffering servant. And here's where this really has relevance for you and me today. And I don't want you to miss this because this is the heart, friends, of the gospel. It means first that Jesus lives as our Redeemer. We have a Redeemer in Jesus Christ. You know, I think we're in danger in the church today as well as outside the church of modern America of making the same mistake that Jesus' contemporaries made. Who doesn't want peace? Who doesn't want good relationships with, with their brothers and sisters, with their family? Who doesn't want peace? between races and classes of people in Springfield and throughout American cities? Who doesn't want to see Asia and America and Haiti and Latin America believe? Who doesn't want to see poverty wiped out? Who doesn't want to see the sex trade and human trafficking done away with? Who doesn't want to see an end to, to terrorist actions and wars and civil wars and international hostilities? Who doesn't want to see the destruction or the disarmament unilaterally of all chemical, nuclear, and biological weapons? This world languishes for the same. But the irrational, contradictory fact is, is that so many Christians and the world want it without the cross of Jesus Christ. Even the church wants a world like that without the cross. And we need to realize this morning, friends, that the cross is God's answer to all the disunity, to the war, to the wretchedness, to the poverty, the pride, to the sin that is dragging all of humanity into an open grave. And the only place that we can all find unity and come together is at the foot of the cross of Jesus the Christ. Peace can never be legislated. That doesn't mean I'm against legislation, but legislation and education and socialization and even medication without the cross of Jesus Christ is not the answer. And all of those will be doomed to frustration and to futility. God alone can answer the disharmony and the destruction and the tragedy of this world and the decay of humanity in the cross of the Messiah, we have a Redeemer. And we know as well that our Redeemer, Jesus, he rules as the King of Kings. There is nothing in your life, nothing in my life, nothing in this world from all eternity that is beyond his power. He is the one upon the throne. God never hid from us the secret of his plan. And it's this, God purposes that in his sovereign will that everything that exists on heaven and on earth and below the earth will find its fulfillment and perfection in Jesus Christ. Yes, he's the Messiah. 
Yes, he's the redeemer. And yes, he is the king of kings. He reigns on the throne of David. His reign is a righteous reign. And he will put an end to war and poverty. He will reconcile all men and women to all men and women. And he does it by shedding his blood on the cross of Calvary. The only reconciling force in history is the sacrifice of the Son of God. Paul would say to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 1.20 that God himself, he would raise Christ from the dead and he would seat him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, above all power, dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. There's a deep relevance in that for us today, and even more for us personally. If we were to look at Matthew 16, from which Peter's confession comes, after this testimony, Jesus begins to prepare his disciples for his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And I want you to notice, he ends this chapter with these words. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves Take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they've done. And to wrap this up this morning, I want to zero in on a very unpopular, but a very relevant fact. And this is in the box there on your outline, friends. God's answer to human tragedy is optional sacrifice. God's provision for our salvation, the whole idea behind confession, is optional sacrifice. Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, the cross that he's talking about, it's not something beyond your control. It's not something that, that happens to us inadvertently or unexpectedly in tragedy. The way of the cross, it's something you have the choice to take up voluntarily. We choose to follow Christ. We choose to give our confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And friends, you are not a follower of Jesus Christ. All of your profession, to the contrary aside, if you turn down the cross, if you do not claim, Jesus, I'm a sinner, and I need, and I accept you as my Savior, and I invite you as the Lord of my life, as my Messiah. We've talked about salvation to this point, and we've talked about what it means to listen and then to build on that listening with belief. And today we're talking about that confession. Romans 10 verses 9 through 10 says, If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. The wisdom of the Old Testament says very plainly, whoever conceals their sin does not prosper. But the one who confesses and renounces finds mercy. And we're going to talk about repentance next week and then about baptism. 
Jesus himself, though, said in Matthew 10, verse 32, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. You see, our God and Savior, and this is the last point on your outline, our God and Savior, Jesus, will never play second fiddle. He will never take second chair. I like the old song, uh, the, the old quartet song that used to say, it's not a bill that's up to be voted on. It became a law when he wrote it in stone. Number one on his list of his big ten, when he came to earth, he said it again. It's been the same way since the beginning of time, so don't be fooled into thinking it's not a crime. He made it plain and clear it's not a rhyme or a riddle. God doesn't play second fiddle. We did it again this week. We faced a tragic world in which we live. The news that we see every day is discouraging, and in the midst of this tragic world, what do we find in the church of Jesus Christ? Men and women who somehow believe at times that the gospel of Jesus Christ was meant to preserve or be maintaining the status quo. To keep us comfortable in our faith with unruffled feathers. To help us enjoy life no matter what happens anywhere else in the world. And we become spiritually comfortable in our routines. And we give God peanuts in our life instead of absolute power. And we are losing souls every day. Let me tell you what I believe the greatest loss in our modern world is. It is the man or woman who will not listen, who will not believe, and who will not confess a faith in Jesus Christ, who will not take up the cross, denying themselves to make a difference in a desperate world. Friends, we're living in a world that will never get back to normal because we've forgotten what normal even looks like. And God's answer to all the tension, to all the turmoil, to all the lack of personal peace is Jesus Christ. And Jesus wants to know once and for all the same thing of you that he asked of his disciples that day. Who do you say that I am? Will you confess that I am the Messiah, the Son of the living God who took up the cross to pay the penalty of death, the wage for your sin. Friends, I'm going to ask you to stand with me this morning. And that confession is exactly what I'm asking you to make. If you're a believer and you've made that confession before men, before, rejoice in the fact that you can say that every day of your life as a reconfirmation that, God, again, I am putting my life in your hands because this is what I believe. But friends, if you have listened, if you have heard the word of God, if you believe in your heart that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that he came to this world, that he did die for your sins, that he was placed in a tomb and three days later, God in his power displayed his wonder as he raised Jesus back from the dead. Friends, if you're willing to say, I need the forgiveness that was purchased at that cross, I need to, to accept Jesus as the Savior of my life. And God, I invite you to be my Lord and Savior. Friends, that's what this time of decision is for. And then right on the heels of that, it's time to say the life I lived before for myself, 
for my family, for others, for whatever destiny I thought I had. I'm turning my back on that because I'm living for God and God alone. I repent. And the Bible says to be baptized so that your sins can be washed away and you'd receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you have a decision to make, today is the day of salvation. But let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it is so easy to be uh, disappointed in our life. It's so easy to be shaken and discouraged because living hurts. And this world is a mess. Father, it's true sometimes as we look at our own families. What's a normal family look like anymore? What's a normal life look like? We know what a blessed life looks like from your word. But somehow, 6,000 years ago back, you, you started a family in a garden. You said, this is the way it's supposed to look. But we didn't have long to see because we sinned. And what was meant to be became distorted. I know that you're a God that works. Jesus, you said you were on this earth to do your Father's work, and you did it. You still are working on it. And today, we know there's a day coming soon that that work's going to find its next grand stage when you come back for us. When the dead in Christ are raised and a new heaven and a new earth are established and normal becomes the most wonderful thing we've ever experienced. But Father, we need to be prepared. And for some maybe in this room today, they've never humbled themselves. They've never looked at that option that you said, if anyone would come after me. Well, Lord, maybe they want to come. They're ready to come today. So help them take the step. Help them be bold and they're making the confession. You really are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. I accept and I invite you to be my Lord and Savior. Father, whatever need you placed on the heart this morning, let your spirit do its work in Jesus' name. Amen.